0: Take a quick scroll through Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or Instagram or whatever you use, and you'll quickly see that a lot of people question the validity of medical science. It's not a new thing. In the middle of the 18th century, in Europe, people were actively questioning medical practitioners, and that skepticism led to the discovery of what I think is one of the most underrated aspects of medical research today. A critical part of every clinical trial. This story starts with Franz Anton Mesmer in the city of Vienna in the year 1774, just around the time Mozart was composing the Sparrow Mass in C major. They were friends, by the way, Mozart and Mesmer, so that gives you some idea of the kinds of people Dr. Mesmer was hanging out with. The story ends with Marie Antoinette in Paris in 1784. And trust me, a lot happens over these 10 years. Franz Mesmer was not a typical doctor. He had some very revolutionary techniques. So 100 years before, Isaac Newton told the world about the gravitational forces that pull between every object in the universe. And that was known as universal gravity. Well, Mesmer had his own theory kind of built on that. He believed in a natural invisible energy transferred among all living things. And he called that animal gravity. He believed that just as the gravitational pull of the moon created the tides of the ocean, he could create tides inside the human body. And those tides would have wonderful restorative powers. His first patient is a young woman named Francisca Osterlin. She suffers from hysteria. In his office, he pours her a drink. It's a homemade tonic containing, among other things, iron. Then he places magnets on various parts of her body and moves them around to create tides of an invisible energy within her. And it works. Francisca says she feels a mysterious fluid running through her body and her symptoms disappear. Because he had used magnets to manipulate the invisible energy, Mesmer changed the name of his process from animal gravity to animal magnetism. Yep, he was healing people with his animal magnetism. It's true. After a couple of years of moderate success, he takes on a very high-profile patient. She's an 18-year-old piano virtuoso named Maria Theresia von Paradis. She is beautiful, immensely talented, and almost completely blind. Dr. Mesmer begins to treat her with his animal magnetism, and by all reports, her vision starts to return. But there are also reports that the married, middle-aged doctor is having an illicit affair with the teenage musician. With that scandal hovering over him, he packs up and heads to Paris. And within a month of him leaving Vienna and thus ending her treatment, Maria's ability to see disappears completely and permanently. (laughs) Paris is much more liberal than Vienna. That's true today, and it was definitely true back then. Mesmer soon found his place among the social elites. His friend Mozart even came to stay with him a few times, and they threw these amazing parties. I don't actually know that they threw any parties, but I really hope they did. Because, I mean, we're talking about the inventor of animal magnetism and the greatest composer of his time. If they did throw parties, they were definitely amazing. Speaking of his animal magnetism, the mechanics of his treatments took an interesting turn as well. He stopped using magnets. Instead, he used his bare hands to manipulate the tides throughout his patients' bodies. Also, rather than one-on-one sessions, he started having group events. He rented a large room in a nondescript building and invited a dozen people to a session. They came with complaints of anxiety, stiff and sore joints, all kinds of things, with one exception, venereal diseases. Dr. Mesmer would not touch those with a 10-foot pole. Anyway, these events became known as a bucket. The room is dimly lit. Mesmer is wearing a purple silk gown. Homemade cocktails are passed around with unknown contents. In the center of the room is a giant wooden tub. No one knows what the liquid inside it is, but there are iron rods that stick out at odd angles. Each rod is at a different height, so as you move around, you can press different parts of your body up against it the magnetic energy flows from the liquid in the tub through these rods and into your body. That's the idea anyway. Some visitors react strongly, falling on the floor in spasms. Some shake and quiver as if a powerful force is surging through their body. And at the end of the baquette, the patients are exhausted, drained, and cured of whatever it was they were suffering from. The people who attended these treatments were rich and influential. As a result, Mesmer's sessions became a hot topic of gossip. Who was going? What were they being treated for? And most importantly, did it even work? The people who doubted the treatments even had a name for it. They said that the people who underwent Dr. Mesmer's treatments were mesmerized. Yeah, that's where that word comes from. Isn't that cool? Mesmerized. The patient list included a woman named Marie Antoinette, who, by the way, like Dr. Mesmer, was originally from Austria. But at this point in history, she's 25 years old and married to the king of France, Louis XVI. It's interesting times for Mesmer. One of his patients is the queen, and one of his skeptics is the king. King Louis wants to know what his wife is doing at these treatments and whether there's any medical validity to them. So, in 1784, he ordered the Royal Commission on Animal Magnetism. Louis took his science seriously. This commission was actually two completely separate groups of investigators working independently. He wanted to see if they would come up with the same answers to his two questions. Does animal magnetism exist and does it work? The joint commissions, both staffed by esteemed physicians of the day, interviewed and examined dozens of patients. They even got their own sets of iron rods and tested out Mesmer's methods. Some of those tests, by the way, were done at Benjamin Franklin's house. He was the U.S. ambassador to France at the time, and as of course you know, Benjamin Franklin was also really into science. In fact, one of the groups, the people experimenting at his house, was dubbed the Franklin Commission. After five months of study, both commissions submitted their report to the king. And they both returned with the same answer. Well, actually, the same three answers. Firstly, on the question of whether animal magnetism exists,
1: they said this. The commissioners have recognized that this animal magnetic fluid cannot be perceived by any of our senses.
0: But their second finding was that many of the patients they examined did react to the
1: treatments. Kind of. Imagination without magnetism produces convulsions, but magnetism without imagination produces nothing.
0: You see, they had blindfolded some subjects and told them they were using metal rods, but then not really using metal rods, or using the rods in a different spot to see if they would react. And in many cases, people still did. And this showed that they were reacting to the suggestion, not to the treatment itself.
1: This action cannot be regarded as physical. We do not see that it depends on a fluid which is communicated. It is entirely mental. It is the action of the imagination.
0: So, they were fooling themselves. It was documented evidence of what we now call the placebo effect. It is the foundation of psychotherapy. The idea that the power of the mind, the power of your own belief, is strong enough to have real medical benefits. I can't overstate how massive that is. These people didn't just think they were cured, they were cured. Just not by the magnets or the rods or the touching. They were cured by their own minds. But at the same time, the whole process was fake. The third finding of the Royal Commission is the part that occasionally gets forgotten, but it's really the thing this whole episode is about. The investigators were very clear that Dr. Mesmer was not a scam artist. He was not knowingly fooling people. They concluded that he was also being influenced by a placebo effect.
1: Man, mechanical in his actions, bends himself over time to repeat what he sees and what he hears. He did a treatment, his patients got better,
0: so he concluded that his treatment worked, and he kept doing it. He was being impacted the same way his subjects were. That lesson, the concept that both patient and doctor can be impacted by a placebo, directly impacts how we do clinical trials today. It's the reason we do double-blind trials. The patient can't know if they're getting a placebo or the active medicine, and the people running the test can't know either. That's because if they know who's getting the real treatment, they may interpret the results differently. They might see improvement even if there isn't any. That is what Dr. Mesmer taught us. The final words of the Royal Commission phrase it much more eloquently than I ever could.
1: Magnetism will not have been entirely useless to the philosophy that condemns it. It is a great experiment on the power of imagination.
0: I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. In this series, we tell stories from history, like the one about Dr. Mesmer, and then connect them to what's happening in modern medical research. For example, Symar is doing a triple-blind placebo-based clinical trial right now. We'll explain that later. Throughout this show, you'll hear stuff like this.
1: Endless paperwork, endless trial and error by a dedicated laboratory staff. But discovery is just the beginning.
0: Now those are just some old newsreels I dug up and we use them because I want to drive home the idea that these lessons are timeless.
1: Meanwhile, clinical tests indicate amazing effectiveness.
0: From 1950s newsreels to Paris in the 1700s to modern-day Manitoba. We see it time and time again. What you know, and what you therefore expect to see, are often just as powerful as what you actually observe. This is episode four, Double Blind. On August 14th, 1971, on an otherwise pleasant, sun-filled Sunday morning, police converge on a home in Palo Alto, California. A young man, Caucasian, brown hair, blue eyes, 21 years old, currently unemployed, answers the door. He's handcuffed, read his rights, and shoved into the back of a squad car. Okay,
2: you wanna get in the car, please? Sir? I wanna get
0: in the car. That same day, 11 other men are rounded up in much the same way. They're all booked, fingerprinted, and taken to the basement of a very unusual prison. They're stripped naked. They're searched. Each man is then handed an identical one piece smock. This is the only piece of clothing they get. And on the front, there's a number. They no longer have a name.
2: Hey, I don't want anybody left.
0: The guards are wearing khaki uniforms. Each has a wooden baton dangling from their belt. The first night, very few of the prisoners get any sleep. The prison (laughs) is noisy. The guards walking their patrols don't even try to stay quiet. There are no toilets in the cells. If a prisoner needs to use the washroom, they have to call for a guard. Then they get a bag put over their head. They get marched from their cell up a set of stairs across a grassy lawn and into another building. The guards quickly grow tired of escorting them on these trips, so they start restricting them. Punishment is handed out seemingly at random. Some prisoners are forced to do push-ups with a guard's boot planted between the shoulder blades. Over the next few days, conditions deteriorate even further. The prisoners protest by blockading themselves in their cells. The guards respond by spraying them with fire extinguishers. And then they take away their mattresses. One of the prisoners, 416, starts a hunger strike. And for that, he gets thrown into solitary confinement and left for a day. On day number six, Dr. Philip Zimbardo steps in and says, Okay, enough's enough, and he terminates the experiment. Now, this all happened at a prestigious university in California, and all of it was under the direction of the psychology department. It's become known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. The 24 young men involved were all volunteers for what was supposed to be a two-week experiment. They were divided into two groups, 12 guards, 12 prisoners. The purpose of the experiment was to see if people changed their behavior as a result of their situation. If I give you a uniform and a weapon and access to faceless, nameless people to prey upon, will you turn into a monster? Even with the experiment being ended early, the findings were clear. The guards, hiding behind their mirrored sunglasses, brutally mistreated their prisoners. And that's despite the fact that they were all just randomly selected for their roles by the flip of a coin just a few days before. The lesson that all of us, given the right context, have the capacity for brutality is in just about every intro-psych textbook in the world. In fact, when U.S. military guards at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq were caught abusing prisoners in 2004, it was this very same Dr. Zimbardo who was called to be an expert witness at the trial. and He explained that their behavior was a product of their situation. But how much faith should we put in the findings of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Some of Dr. Zimbardo's PhD students were helping run the experiment by acting as wardens. During the second day of the experiments, one of those grad students pulled one of the pretend guards aside and said this. Hey, you've been kind of in the background, but we really wanna get you active and involved because the guards have to know that every guard is gonna be what we call a tough guard. The volunteer guard says, I'm not really too tough. And the pretend warden answers, Yeah, well, you have to try and get it in you. You have to be in the action and that sort of thing. It's really important for the workings of the experiment because whether or not we make this thing seem like a prison largely depends on the guard's behavior. Let that sink in for a moment. The whole purpose of the experiment is to see if randomly selected people would become bullies and abuse their power if they were made guards. And here we have one of the experimenters telling the test subject that they need to be a tough guard and to get in on the action. So did that normal undergraduate kid become a monster because he put on a uniform? Or was he acting that way because he was told to? It wasn't just that one guard getting a nudge to be more of a tough guy. Before the simulation even started, the guards were brought together for an orientation and the experiment was explained to them. One of the men later revealed that they were told they weren't the ones being studied, that they were just there to create a prison-like environment and that the researchers wanted to see how the prisoners reacted. I mean, they had signed up for a study on prison life, so that would totally make sense. This falls under the heading of what psychologists call demand characteristics. That's when people in a study try to give the experimenters what they want, often because they've guessed what hypothesis is being tested and they want to be helpful. Lying to your participants about the true purpose of an experiment is a completely valid way of getting around demand characteristics. Psychologists do it all the time. So telling the men they weren't the ones being studied, that's fine, but not if it's coupled with telling them they need to behave a certain way. In this case, there's an added twist. These men were getting paid to do this. I mean, it's not much, it's like 15 bucks a day, but still, it's added incentive to do a good job, to give the boss what you think the boss wants. If your subjects aren't blind to the goal of the experiment, then maybe you're not really doing an experiment. Maybe you're just doing a demonstration. I'm not here to say that good people never do bad things. That's obviously not true. In fact, one interpretation of the data from this experiment is, if you tell people you're doing this for a good reason, like for the sake of science, people will do terrible things. But regardless of what findings you want to draw from this, the fact that instructions, whether explicit or implicit, were given to the participants, you just have to take that into account. Let me put that concept of knowing too much in a different environment, something way more pleasant. In the 1960s, orchestras were largely male. One study from that era showed that in major orchestras in North America, women made up just 6% of the musicians. And it was around that time that a new audition technique was introduced. And it went like this. When applicants are brought to the venue, they enter through a side door. They're escorted to the stage and seated behind a screen. The judges sitting in the audience have no idea who the candidate is. They don't know what they look like, their age, their race, or their gender. The only piece of information they can use to make their decision is what they hear. The result? more women got selected. In fact, over the next 20 years, the number of women in major orchestras quadrupled. So sometimes, knowing less can help you make a better decision. I mentioned earlier that simar that's the group that produces this show, that they are in the middle of doing clinical trials right now. They want to test the hypothesis that a hormone they discovered, something called hepatolin, can make your muscles draw glucose out of the blood more effectively. You see, type 2 diabetics were always described as insulin-resistant. So they have plenty of natural insulin, their bodies just don't react very strongly to it. The solution has always been to just give them way more insulin. If Symar can show that hepatolin does what they think it does then we don't have to give diabetics more insulin. You just help them make better use of the insulin they already have. So how do you test that idea? Well, you do a trial where you compare people who are given a pill that stimulates the production of hepatolin to people who are given a placebo.
2: The first thing to recognize is that the bias and the researcher effects exist
0: and that their consequences can be really serious. That's Dallas Laguerre the Director of Operations at CYMAR. Since we don't
2: have a means of eliminating these biases, we have to find ways to
0: work around them. The blinding process is that workaround. It comes in three layers.
2: A single blind is where the participant in the trial does not know if they're receiving the placebo or the real treatment. In a double blind experiment, Both the participant and the experimenter do not know which group received the placebo or the experimental treatment. In a triple blind, the analyst who's actually analyzing the results from the experiment have no idea of which group any individual fell into. So that's a completely blinded study.
0: So it's triple blind. The people who are the data? The researcher collecting the data and the person analyzing the data are blind to who got what. Symar also has a neat way of dealing with the issue of your control group versus your experimental group.
2: A very good type of experimentation would use the same individual for both the control and the test.
0: Imagine there are two pills a red pill and a blue pill. One is real, and the other one's a placebo. On Monday, the subject comes in, takes the blue pill, eats a meal, and then has their blood sugar measured. On Thursday, they come back, they do it again, but this time, they get the red pill.
2: The drug is going to have a different effect on different people, but when you can use the same individual as their own control, you're eliminating all the variation that would occur by having different individuals.
0: Another name for this is a paired design. That approach isn't always possible with every medicine being tested, but when you can do it, you save time, you use fewer people, and your results are more accurate. So that's it for episode 4. I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, how science comes to life. Oh, one last thing about Dr. Mesmer and animal magnetism. There was a lot of interest in the report that the French doctors wrote up. In fact, 20,000 copies were printed. It was also translated into other languages, and it was circulated throughout Europe. As a result, in very short order, any wealthy or learned person on the continent became aware that the treatments didn't really have any real effect. And since they didn't believe they would work, they didn't work. Dr. Franz Mesmer left France, and he lived out his days in near obscurity, in a remote town in a corner of Switzerland, treating and curing the last few true believers.